Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I am Tevi Troy, your host, and in this episode, we're going to talk to Jay Cost, a political reporter at the Weekly Standard, about his book, Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party and Now Threatens the American Republic. The title is a little provocative, and I think a little too long, but it is a political history of the Democratic Party and how it came to be and how it stands now and the ways in which it has changed over time, and Jay apparently thinks from that subtitle for the worse. Jay is a political reporter, as I said, with The Standard. He's also worked at Real Clear Politics and really is one of the best political reporters out there in terms of telling you what's going on on the ground and has a great sense of the trends and demographic shifts that were going on in American politics. In this book, he's taking, I guess, a bigger picture, looking at one party and see how it shifts over time. And I think that is an interesting way to look at things as we go into another election season. It seems the election seasons are never far away. So we're going to talk to Jay about his book, Spoiled Rotten, and how the politics of political parties influences the policy process. Jay Cox. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. We are really thrilled to have you. We read your stuff often in the Weekly Standard, and before that in Real Clear Politics. And I want you to tell us a little bit, uh, although I've, I guess I've ruined it a little bit by mentioning a few places <laughs> where you work, but tell me a little bit about who you are and why you wrote this book. Well, I, uh, I, I write the Morning Jake column for uh, the Weekly Standard. And the book is, of course, called Spoiled Rotten, How the Politics of Patronage Corrupted the Once Noble Democratic Party. And I uh, mention the title because the subtitle sort of signals um, my motivation for writing the book. It was really watching President Obama as a candidate in 2008 and comparing and contrasting that to his time during 2009 and 2010. And o- Obama as a candidate seemed to understand the problem of the public good in a democracy such as ours, which is a long-standing problem. It's sort of inherent to Republican government. Uh, how do you, as a politician in a democratic society, govern for the whole country when obviously the whole country didn't vote for you and you don't need the support of the whole country to stay in office? Um, and of course, there's a difference between the public good and the but the personal benefit of, you know, half plus one of the electorate, the two are not the same thing. I thought that Obama as a candidate in a lot of respects seemed to understand the nature of the problem. He talked in, for instance, his um, autobiography, The Audacity of Hope, about politics stretching beyond petty differences and sort of solving big persistent problems in society. Um, And this was also the sort of the theme of his red state, blue state address at the at the the keynote speaker at the 2004 Democratic Convention. The speech that made him. Absolutely, the speech that made him, that that catapulted him from an obscure state senator uh, in uh, Hyde Park, Chicago, to the the presidency. And the the point of the speech was about that, you know, politicians implicitly on both sides, it wasn't actually a great speech to help John Kerry, but politicians implicitly on both sides try to divide the country up into factions and then scoop up half plus one of the vote and, and but there's a broader national identity that is going un uh unacknowledged. Um but then watching him in office and watching what he did with the with the stimulus bill and the health care bill and the financial reform bill where I saw these pieces of legislation really as massive payoffs to core democratic constituency groups, uh, public sector labor unions, uh, in, uh, trade unions, um, you know, the Congressional Black Caucus, feminists, environmentalists, and of course the big banks as well. All of these groups are core democratic groups. Now, I don't necessarily object to that because that's just the way politics goes. But I was struck by looking at those bills when you take away the payoffs to the various groups. What was the rest of the country left with? And I found that the rest of the country was left with very little. Um, And I thought that that was an interesting story to tell. How was it that the the Democratic Party has come to this? Not just that the party used to be the coalition that fought this kind of stuff, but that Obama as a candidate seemed to recognize that this was a problem, yet as president, he succumbed to it. It's 
suggested to me that it was a very thorny issue that stretched beyond the personalities and the news cycles and that we had to look uh, more broadly and more deeply at what had gone wrong. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the title because I, I noted in the introduction that I thought it was a little provocative and a little long for a subtitle. Was that your subtitle or, you know, I know sometimes the publishers try and push subtitles? Well, it was a combination. It was sort of a back and forth process. They uh, Obviously, they wanted a, a subtitle that, uh, um, you know, was provocative that could sell copies, but at the end of the day, I'm very comfortable with it. I mean, at the end, where I, you know, I mean, the the concept of threatening the republic, um, I think is probably the most provocative part. But you know, and I was writing as I was constructing the book and writing and going through it, I didn't have that title in mind because I really felt that uh, democratic politicians have been republican with a small R in some respect up and. Through Bill Clinton, one way or the other, um, I I feel as though that this, the the coalition, the political coalition as it exists now, is just not capable of Republican government. Again, small R, the notion not not the grand old party, but the the notion that the government is supposed to represent the interests of everybody. I I just don't think that the Democratic Party as it exists today is really capable of that anymore. You say they can't govern, but at the same time, you are a real expert in kind of the demographic trends that underlie politics. And, you know, I'm sure the Roy Teixeira argument that the, about the emerging progressive majority, the emerging Democratic majority. Do you think we're facing a situation where the Democrats have a governing majority but don't have a governing ability? No. Well, I sort of dispute the core assumptions of the Teixeira-Judas argument. And I, I mean, I'd note with interest that that argument has been a moving target over the years. I mean, when they published the emerging Democratic majority, and I think it was 2001 or 2002, the white working class was an essential element of that of, of their vision for the future. But they've since basically dropped the, well, at least Teixeira has, I don't know where Judas is on this anymore, but they've sort of dropped it as a, as a, um, you know, as as a uh, as an element in in the party, I I so I don't think we're on the precipice of a permanent or enduring democratic majority. I, I be, in large part because I don't think that that the people who purvey that thesis uh, fully appreciate how much they're bleeding on the other end in terms of the white working class. Um, and, and so far, I mean, the the extent to which they've gained with minorities, they've lost with the white working class. So the end result has been a wash, number one. And number two, I think they overestimate um, the security of the non-white, non-black vote. Really, the only vote for them that's locked in is the African-American vote. And I think Hispanics are much more up for grabs than they're willing to acknowledge. So I, I don't think that we're on the precipice of a permanent um, Democratic majority. I certainly hope that we're not, not simply because I'm a Republican, uh, but, you know, the thesis of my book is that this is a party that's not capable of governing. And, you know, this was something Madison was really worried about in uh, the, the, the period between the conclusion of the Revolutionary War and the start of the you know, the constitutional regime where we had the Articles of Confederation and the state governments. Um, and if you look at Madison's writing critiquing those state governments, he was really appalled that these majority coalitions could form in the states and they would be durable, but their durability was basically just, um, you know, built around benefiting uh, their voters at the expense of the opposition side. And that's one reason Madison wanted a large republic of sort of shifting cycles and, uh, you know, shifting alliances. Nothing is locked down when there's so many moving parts. I mean, look, I think that's one big reason. That's that's a huge big reason I don't believe Tishara and and the proponents of the emerging Democratic majority, I, I just I think Madison is right and they're wrong. Uh, but if they are right, that that wouldn't be a good thing. It would it would sort of be like what happened with the state politics, like in Massachusetts and New York, for instance, during the 1780s, which was just disastrous. I'm glad you mentioned Madison because you, you talk about this term clientelism, and I know it mm -hmm. comes throughout the book. Is that a term that Madison would recognize? And is this define the term, but also say is it unique to the Democrats? Do Republicans engage in clientelism as well? Yeah, that's those are those are good questions. That's not a that's not a um, that's not a line that Madison. That's not a phrase he himself. No, I, I, you're a neologism, right? Right. It, 
Well, I didn't make it. I mean, it's it's drawn from the uh, concept of the urban machines, right? Is that the patronage regime, uh, you know, the recipients of patronage would be clients because it was a patron-client regime. I mean, Madison was worried about this sort of thing. I mean, remember, when he was writing, you know, the Federalist Papers, we didn't have governments that were really capable of distributing patronage. So he didn't sort of specify it in the terms that I specified in, but my specifications sort of follow from early, you know, American history in the 19th century and the sort of the rise of the spoils system and the rise of uh, the patronage machines like in, you know, Tammany Hall and in Chicago and Pittsburgh and Jersey City and other places. These were things that sort of, um, I, I would say that Madison anticipates them, the, not their specific form and content, but the way that they deal with politics and the way they go about forming majority coalitions. So now, as for the Republicans, the answer to that question, do do the Republicans have a clientelism problem? The answer to that question is yes. I would say that, I mean, I haven't done a careful study of the Republican Party today. Uh, I don't think that they're, I think that as a political coalition, they are very troubled party at this point um, in terms of governing for the public interest, but I'm not sure that I would frame it in the same way that I frame the Democrats. I, I think the Republican Party's core challenge at this moment is integrating the South into a national coalition, because this is something that frankly really hasn't happened in an enduring way since, uh, you know, before uh what the compromise of 1850 the south has always sort of been this separate region with its own distinct identity and no political party really has been able to endure over time with the south being part of it you know because it's it's been too far bridged across i think that's the republican party's core challenge at this point i wouldn't say that it's a clientelism problem in the same way the Democrats have now. The Republicans did have a problem like this in the 19th century, and I, I actually compare the, the modern Democrats, the Republicans of the 19th century, where they had, the Republicans had very loyal industrialist factions in the Northeast and, and bankers and businessmen who were benefiting from the very uh, the 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 Civil War tariff regime, the Republicans kept it after the war ended, even though it was only meant to be an emergency regime. The hike tariffs up, and it was a huge bonanza for capital owners in the Northeast who would turn around and kick uh, massive con campaign contributions to the Republican Party. And then what the tariffs also did was they created a huge surpluses in the Treasury. And, and so whenever the Republicans got their hands on the government, they would just raid the Treasury and, and send out the surplus to Civil War, Civil War veterans in these ever generous bonuses and, and pension benefits. And that Civil War veterans also happened to be the most loyal Republican constituency probably ever. So that I, I sort of took that to be an example of a political coalition that was governing um, in a bad way, in an anti-Republican way. And what is particularly interesting about that 19th century Republicanism that I, I think also relates today is that it was really their political approach, their 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 policy, their economic policy was really a perversion of the original justification for high tariffs that were, was developed by Hamilton and especially Henry Clay, which was the core backbone of the uh, you know 19th century conservatism, which was protective tariffs to grow American industry. That sort of pure, clean ideology had been distorted and perverted for political purposes. And that's sort of what I think has happened to the Democrats today. So my book is not a criticism of liberalism per se. Liberalism as it might be developed by, you know, very young, wonkish, enthusiastic liberal policy mavens. But liberalism as it gets you know, when it's sent from them off to Congress, what does it wind up as? And and I, I think there's a perversion. And so the point is, you know, if the 19th century Republicans were, were practicing conservatism for their voters rather than the whole country, I think that 21st century uh, Democrats are, are that their liberalism is not public spirited liberalism, but rather clientelism liberalism. Well, uh, we'll get to the 21st century in, in a few minutes, and uh, i got to say, in the 21st century, those large surpluses you talk about sound pretty nice, and <laughs> they're hard to get to. But um, let, let's go back to Bryan, because you say William Jennings Bryan 
revived Jacksonianism. What is Jacksonianism as you would describe it, and how did he do this? Oh, that's a great question. Well, Jackson was appalled by the political corruption of the 1820s, and he felt that the government had basically become uh, the servant of financial interests in the Northeast, and he was actually a gold bug. So it's one very interesting way he differed from uh, Brian. He felt that uh, paper currency was the way for the um, financial interests to conspire at the expense of the Western and Southern farmers. But at any rate, Jackson felt that the government had not been working on behalf of the people. And in the 1824 presidential election, where he is denied the presidency by the House of Representatives, he, as Jackson so often did in his life, he personalized these massive cultural symbolic differences. These regional differences became very personal. And so Jackson sort of became, in his mind at least, a crusader for small farmers, particularly of the Southwest. And what he tried to do was um, sort of, you know, smash the moneyed interests in the government and return the power, at least in his own mind, to the people. And so for him, that meant vetoing uh, the, a bill to recharter the, the Second Bank of the United States in 1832. And then he, of course, goes and he withdraws after the election. And that year, he withdraws the deposits that the federal government sent it out to the state banks. And it was part of his belief of redistributing political power. I mean, you can get sort of hung up in the in the specifics of the policy of the age. But really what Jackson was about was distributing political power and economic power away from the Northeast and to the people as he saw them. And that is really sort of the, the way I characterize William Jennings Bryan, right, is that Bryan, who runs in 1896, captures the Democratic nomination. The issues have changed, right? Bryan, you know, is not fighting against the Second Bank of the United States. And like I said, Jackson was a gold bug and Bryan was in favor of a silver currency. But that really is just a signal that the uh, that the sort of the progressive or the left or whatever you want to call it, the, the, the sort of um, rural populist faction of which Jackson and Bryan had been part of, had sort of changed its mind about monetary policy. And really, the left really never had a good idea about monetary policy until Wilson, and even then it's sort of arguable. But Bryan, like Jackson, wanted to redistribute power and, and stature and, and wealth out of the moneyed interests in the Northeast and and give it to the people is how he saw it. And and his candidacy really ends the very lengthy period of time when the Democratic Party was an ideological hodgepodge. Shortly after Jackson um retires and is, you know, heads home back to Tennessee, back to the Hermitage, you know, the the country uh starts losing the contours of that sort of financial economic debate that he initiated and starts being become overwhelmed by, um, you know, the slavery debate, which obviously culminates in the Civil War. And after the Civil War, the party ends up regrouping and becomes actually becomes uh, quite a potent political force. But it doesn't have any kind of ideological character to it, because when you combine the, 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 you know, Tammany Hall, which was actually a conservative political organization, was not progressive, was not by 19th century standards. And then the Southern Plantation class was not progressive by 19th century standards. There really was no, the Jacksonian ideology of the people versus the powerful really gets lost. And it's only because of the Panic of 1893 and the economic collapse that sort of, you know, the populist flame that had been sort of burning in the in the Great Plains sort of ignites and you know sweeps across the middle of the country and sweeps over the Democratic Party and brings Bryant, who was only 36 years old in 1896, becomes the party's nominee. And and if you look at his um, 1896 Cross of Gold speech. The overlap between his rhetoric and the Jacksonian rhetoric it, in the in the bank in the bank veto is just extraordinary. And you can sort of see that this this uh, giant of sort of populism had been slumbering for some time, and it just sort of reawakens with Bryan. Do, do you think that that came naturally, or do you think Bryan studied Jackson's texts in terms of determining what his rhetoric would look like? No, I don't think Brian was not much of a student. 
um, and he wasn't very well read. And at the time, people had sort of accused him of not being very intelligent, which I, I don't think is very fair. Um, I, I don't I think it was just sort of this understanding of that that he he drew upon. I mean, I, I you know, did did he read the veto message? It's very possible. But I, I think that this was sort of an attitude that had been lingering within the Democratic Party for some time. I mean, the party never stopped seeing itself as the party of Jefferson and Jackson. I mean, that the idea that the party traces its roots to, back to Jefferson, I, I think, is is mostly a myth. I think the Republican Party has today's Republican Party has an equally valid claim to Jefferson as the Democratic Party. But it, it nevertheless it was a myth that they believed in. So every you know, every year they'd have these Jefferson Jackson Day dinners and they'd put the pictures of the two old men up and I and I and I think that it was sort of their 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 ghosts were sort of lingering in the room, I think. So I'm not sure Brian really had to do much of an archaeological project to sort of just kind of realize and sort of awaken and understand and that that these two men in the old ways really fit the mood. I mean, the thing too is that I mean the 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 extent to which the country w- that was really coming apart at the seams in the 1890s. I mean, nowadays we think we have it bad, and it, it obviously was bad in the 1930s. But I mean, it, it was massive unemployment that just swept over the country almost instantaneously, and there was also social unrest. You had the Haymarket riot, for instance. You had, uh, you know, Carnegie turning um, the Pinkertons against the, against the steelworkers here in Pittsburgh and Homestead. I mean, there was just widespread sense that the country was coming apart, it seems. Uh, and that's, I think, really more than anything what, what brought about this Brian-esque populist revolt. Well, but Brian obviously didn't win. What do you think brought the country back together? Do you give Roosevelt and McKinley credit for that? Well, I think um, I, I give McKinley a lot of credit. I actually think McKinley is an unsung hero in American conservatism. And I, for for a while now, I've been trying to pitch a, a book idea on the the value of William McKinley. I haven't managed to sell it yet. But Carl Rove's a big McKinley fan. You should talk to him. Well, McKinley really was. If Brian was the was the revitalization of. Jackson, McKinley really was the guy who channels Henry Clay, sort of this notion. And and you can see it in modern Republican rhetoric. A lot of this, the Republican idea, the conservative idea of broad of economic growth, generating broad-based prosperity and a national identity, all of this gets back to Hamilton and Clay. And, and, and just as the Jacksonian Democrats had sort of been lost, their ethos had been lost, similarly, the Republican Party... I mean, remember, the Republicans are just this hodgepodge coalition uh, that that Lincoln, you know, that falls into Lincoln's lap in 1860, and he has to hold it together during the war. And it it doesn't make a lot of ideological sense. It's really it really only starts with William McKinley, I think, where the party starts developing a coherent ideological platform, pro-growth economic policies. And so, I, I mean, I give McKinley a lot of credit. Um, I. I for as a candidate, because I think he sort of matched Brian. You know, he was very comfortable debating Brian on the issues. He was very comfortable defending the tariff regime. He was very comfortable defending the gold standard. But I, I think more than anything, what helped the Republicans then was that, you know, in Jackson's, I don't, I have quote the statistics in the book. I don't have them at the top at the tip of my fingers. But you know, in Jackson's age, there was just. It was a more rural society that you could win on a largely rural, a rural coalition. You could win, right? You could if you united the farmers in the in the south with the farmers in the west. It was enough for victory. But in 1896, the country was just much more urban. So you know, Brian gives in in his cross of gold speech. You now he says in the speech that uh, you know if if you burn down the cities. They could be built back up, but if you burn down the the farms, that the cities would starve. I mean, this sort of rhetoric was just unprecedented in modern American history, and so it's not a surprise that you know McKinley is one of the few Republicans who actually wins Manhattan County because it, you know it gets to the city folk and the Irish in 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 New York City usually vote. Um, you know, vote uh, Democrat, but they don't want anything to do with that kind of stuff. So that's that's sort of a big Brian is sort of this agrarian hero who's probably about 25 years too late to save um, 
you know, this dying group. And, and, and that sort of points the way moving forward for the Democrats, right, is that the defeat that Bryan suffers, and he suffers it again in 1900, sort of signals to the Democrats that the old Jacksonian ethos, this sort of strictly rural populist ethos, is not enough. That to win, they're going to have to graft the farms on to, in, with the cities, that that would be the basis of uh, a modern political coalition. And that's really the great innovation, the political innovation of Woodrow Wilson. His um, reelection in 1916 is not really well remembered, but in the history of the Democratic Party, it's a hugely important victory. If, if Wilson had lost that year and the Democrats had walked away from that election thinking progressivism uh, does, won't solve our political problem, then we, you know, the Republican Party might very well be the progressive party today. Yeah, I'm gl- glad you mentioned Wilson because I want to talk about that. You call him the founder of the modern Democratic Party, and obviously that 1916 election is a big part of it. Why, why do you see him as the founder and not FDR? Well, Wilson is the one who brings the, uh, right, so the Democrats have this problem, as I alluded to, right, is that if they're going to be the party of the people, is what, you know, Brian sort of reinstills this populist spirit into the party, but he doesn't have policy prescription to win, right? Brian's concept of the people is too narrow. He doesn't really offer the cities anything. So the question then becomes, okay, well, how, how do we win? How do we graft our rural vote onto the urban vote? Now, the Democrats in the previous, in the 19th century managed to do that. Tilden in 1876 and Cleveland in 1884 and 1892, Grover Cleveland, they all did that. Uh, Tilden, Samuel Tilden wins the majority of the popular vote in 1876, and Cleveland doesn't win a majority, but he, he wins. But they were conservatives. They weren't they weren't populist and they certainly weren't leftist in any kind of 19th century sense of the phrase. So if the Democratic Party is going to be a leftist party now moving forward in the spirit of Bryan and the spirit of Jackson, then how do they form a majority? Well, the way to do that is to win the cities and hold the countryside. And Wilson is the one, the Wilson administration particularly the second half of the first term, 1914, 1915, 1916, where Wilson says, let's use the power of big government, not just populism, but progressivism. This sort of, you know, we're going to start regulating industry. We're going to regulate the banks. We're going to regulate working conditions. We're going to recognize labor unions. We're going to give farmers rural credit. It was this sort of realization that Wilson could start using the power of big government um, at, 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 I mean, by contemporary standards, they're still very small. I mean, these are baby steps compared to the New Deal and the Great Society. I mean, obviously, it's very different. But for the time, it was it was a really remarkable, radical almost step forward. Uh, and that's what Wilson did. And that's where he instilled. So if Brian sort of sets the agenda for the party, the party is going to help the little guy. Wilson articulates how they're going to do it. They're going to do it not through Jacksonian notions of small government. They're not going to do it through the populist party and the and and free silver. They're going to use you know the progressivism of people like Henry Adams and Herbert Crawley, and you know so on and so forth. That they were going to use the power of the federal government to regulate life on behalf of the little guy, and that is ethos of the Democratic Party through to this day. Wilson really was the first one. I mean, others had articulated it. Brian had articulated it in 1908. The 1908 platform is really actually pretty close to being a radical platform the Democrats had. But Brian couldn't win. Wilson could win, and more importantly, he could win re-election with that. So he sort of is the political father of the modern party. Getting a little closer to today, although not quite all the way up to today, Democrats have had allies in this effort, including many would say that they've had a lot of help from the press. Uh, You have this great quote on page 100 about Hubert Humphrey complaining about how close Kennedy was to the press, where he says, does he own all the newspapers or does he have something on every publisher? That's how many Republicans feel about all Democrats, not just one Democrat feeling about the Kennedys. Do, Do Democrats own the press and why and how did that develop? Well, they didn't always own the press. I mean, there were, I mean, a lot of remember in the in the 1900s, 
the 1800s, the Democratic Party was just not a respectable political party to be involved with, right? And so a lot of the, you know, when, when you have the first glimpses of progressive reformers with the sort of mugwumps, for instance, in the 1880s, right, it's sort of the revolt of the liberal Republicans against the Grant administration and sort of civil service reform, they don't really use the Democratic Party as a vehicle um, for their agenda. And and so that is, um, you know, that's an important part of the story, right, is that at, they sort of viewed the Democratic Party as being the party of these, uh, you know, drunk Catholic immigrants. Um, you know, they were very nativistic. So, you know, modern day liberals don't like to talk about that, but it's nevertheless true that their progressive forebears were very nativistic. And a lot of their temp- the temperance movement was a pretty thinly disguised nativistic crusade. Um, they were uh, so they didn't like the Democrats because they were sort of the party of the immigrants and they didn't like them because they were the party of of the secessionists. And this is a time when, you know, progressives would have been grown up. Their parents certainly grew up during uh, knew the Civil War. So you just didn't vote for the Democrats. Um, you know, there was this great line. It was James G. Blaine in 1884. You know, the, the, the mythology is that he loses the presidential election because it's some event or something. Somebody stands up and says the, the Democratic Party is the party of rum, Romanism and rebellion. And Blaine doesn't sufficiently rebuke him, which leads to the loss of the Irish vote, thus New York. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly true that that's how it was viewed. So, you know, you have and it's interesting, too, because when you this is a view that endures right in 1916. You would think, okay, Wilson is sort of, you know, revive, you know, bringing the Democrats to progressivism, but the progressive vote is actually split in 1916 between Wilson and Charles Evans Hughes. You know, a lot of progressives ended up backing Wilson, and and Crawley, for instance, was was one of them. I think Walter Lippmann backed him as well, but they were torn. And you know, as you know, after Wilson's first year in office, where he actually does a lot, he does um, he 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 passes um, the uh, the uh, central bank reforms. He passes an enormous tariff reform, and it's just extraordinary how he's how he's able to get the Underwood tariff through the Senate because the Senate had long been the domain of the trust, and they didn't want tariff reform. And, and he also gets through consumer protection legislation. But the New Republic, which nowadays is sort of uh, at least thinks of itself as the standard bearer for American liberalism, they were unimpressed with it. They were they were very unimpressed. Wilson actually has to shift farther to the left after the 1914 midterms to, to win over enough progressives. Like I said, a lot of this was because the Democrats were not just, a, they, they simply were not a respectable political coalition. Um, and even as late as 1924, where there's a progressive challenge to uh, Calvin Coolidge, Bob LaFollette challenges Coolidge. He doesn't do it through the Democratic Party. He revives the old Bull, Bull Moose Party. And the Bull Moose Party itself, you know, in, in 1916 collapses back into the Republican coalition. Um, and it, so it's, and I bring all this up in terms of the media because the media is, the, the Northeastern media, you know, which basically controls national media still is, is in the Northeast and sort of has long been situated pretty comfortably in the progressive tradition. So back then they wouldn't have been Democrats, right? Um, if, if you look at a guy, a guy like, um, uh, I, I pick anybody on N- MSNBC. Probably would not have been a Democrat in the 1890s. Probably would not have been a big fan of some of the conservative Republicans of the era, but would not have been a Democrat. It was really only after the the great the Great Depression, followed by the New Deal, does two things. The first thing it does is it utterly discredits the Republican Party. I mean, the party brand suffers damage. That frankly, the people who lived through the Great Depression and were a, 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 of adult age during the Great Depression, never voted Republican, and really the GOP only rebounded fully because they died off, frankly. And it, just the extent to which the party's reputation was destroyed was extraordinary. And then Roosevelt comes in, Franklin Roosevelt comes in, and he understands the nature of this problem. He sees the Democratic, he's a, he's a progressive in the sort of the, the bull moose idiom, but he's also Democrat. And so he sets about transforming the Democratic Party from this party of, you know, secessionists and sort of, uh, you know, characters who don't 
play very well in the North, transforming it from that into a progressive coalition. And, and by the time he completes that process, that's really that's how the the mainstream media, I think, is drawn into the Democratic Party is that it goes. Now it's almost reversed. Nowadays, if you go up to a place like Massachusetts, well, it's just not respectable to be a Republican up there. I mean, regardless of what their positions are on the issues, this is just not something that civilized people do. Um, and that that's the real that's that's because of Roosevelt. That was and his reinvention of the of the Democratic Party. Another ally in the Democrats have had for a while are labor unions, but labor unions today are very different from what they were, let's say even 30 years ago, where they were strongly anti-communist and, and wanted to prosecute the cold war pretty aggressively. Uh, labor, a labor union Democrat once met a certain type of conservative Democrat who had a, 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 a tougher view on the Soviet union was pro gun perhaps now, no longer what happened on that front? Well, the nature of organized labor has changed. I mean, the first, the, one of the first things that happens, right, is, it, well, in the 1960s, organized labor is still large enough that it can kind of dictate the terms of its relationship with the Democratic Party, right? When it's 25, it, it peaked, I think, around 33% of the population in the Eisenhower years. It starts declining after that, but you're still in the, in the mid-20s you know, high 20s. So one out of four, one out of three workers are in a labor union. And in the North, um, it's, it's a much larger percentage than that because the South is, is not labor. So in the North, where most of the action politically is happening, organized labor is very important. But what happens, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that happens as organized labor, the old line industrial and craft unions begin to decline uh, in terms of their their place in the economy, their independence from the Democratic Party begins to erode. They simply are no longer capable of dictating terms to the party. And and in this after the sixties you have these new left groups like feminists and the environmentalists and, and Nader, for instance, were in their own ways kind of on the radical fringe in a lot of ways. But and there were a lot of radical movements in the nineteen sixties. Some of them stayed radical, some of them disappeared, and some of them went mainstream. Well the feminists and the environmentalists went mainstream and they went into the Democratic Party and they really developed leverage over the party such that or that, that that organized labor simply can't you know, if it's a choice between, you know, the Sierra Club and the broader environmentalists alliance and organized labor, then in all likelihood, the Democrats are going to follow the Sierra Club because they need the Sierra Club simply has more money and they have more they have more power. Now, labor always sort of had boots on the ground that they don't they simply don't have anymore. The environmentalists don't really have that, but they have a lot of power and they have a lot of access to the media and they, all these think tanks and interest groups that get freely quoted. And they have these fantastic lobbying organizations. Labor just was never able to keep up with them. The other thing that happens with organized labor is that it changes its political character changes. Uh, you know, organized labor didn't include government unions in the 1950s. I mean, there was no, and really there was no agitation for that. The first place that organized labor on the government level starts really gets a toehold is Wisconsin in the late 50s. And that begins to, you know, catch fire. And, you know, the labor bosses are really sort, they sort of support this because they need the dues and they need the, you know, it's sort of helping them keep their numbers afloat. But the old industrial and craft labor unions have very different incentives and preferences than the than the government unions right the 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 old the old unions the industrial unions and uh, were you know they were in the private economy and they wanted to make sure that their share of the private economy was growing but they were also interested in growing the whole private economy in general. So there was a very pro-growth ethos there. That's one reason the Democratic Party became so Keynesian, because there was a very strong belief that that could grow the economy, which is what labor wanted, because labor wanted full employment. Uh, they were very much connected to the private economy. Government unions today, however, are not connected to the private economy, at least not nearly in the same kind of way that the old unions were. I mean, they get paychecks from the government. And so, in fact, what they want, what their preferences are, is for an ever larger share of the national income to become socialized. That is what gives them more prestige, because as you as you socialize more and more 
private functions, you need to hire more and more workers and thus more and more government employees. And that will enable the unions to negotiate forever higher wages. So there, they want to socialize the national wealth. And, th and this sort of points to this kind of nexus of, of this alliance that they have developed with uh, African-Americans and environmentalists and even feminists. All of these groups sort of are interested in the government socializing more and more of the national life. They, you know, they all have their different reasons, obviously. But unlike organized labor of the industrial model, which, you know, was anchored in the private economy, these new left groups and these government unions are not. They want they want the, the, the private sector to shrink to protect whatever interest they, they're they're looking after. And so that's another way that when you take this together when you when you combine the sort of the decline of the industrial craft unions with the rise of the government unions you know organized labor really starts to lose the kind of character that it had um, during the 50s and even the 1960s even under George Meany for instance would probably not recognize the modern labor movement even the 70s under Lane Kirkman I would argue but your your answer kind of brings us first full circle to today and, and President Obama you said that President Obama kind of ran a bandwagon campaign in 2008 he's got this combination of these different interest groups combined with his celebrity appeal is that model unique to Obama or can other democrats replicate it how do you see the democratic party going forward it would be very difficult to replicate it a lot, so much of it is based on his unique appeal and it, and, and and it was i mean look these are uncomfortable things to talk about, but they, they nevertheless are, are are very true, right? And it is the racial divide in this country, something that does not get discussed. And usually when it does, it's only discussed in ways to bend uh, political preferences toward the Democratic Party. So I'll be very blunt. Um, what the problem remains that, well, I'll put it this way. In the 1940s and 1950s, up until the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the, 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 the divide, you know, black issues were largely about access to the sort of the political process. And that was why that was a big reason why the Republican Party, which was a conservative party, you know, like I said, the Republican Party has been conservative since McKinley, the conservative party since William McKinley. That's why they were always on the left on civil rights, because it was never about the redistribution of the national wealth. It was always about it was always about the access to the national conversation. Well, what happens with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act is those questions and issues of access disappear. And then suddenly the political conversation between blacks and whites involves distribution of the national wealth. Um, and it it's in all sorts of different areas. I mean, it, obviously, you can think of it in terms of, uh, uh, you know, affirmative action and in, in terms of welfare and in, in, but all, more broadly in terms of things like school busing and school integration. There's all sorts of different ways. You can look at the cities in the north and see the rise of the suburbs and the sort of the gentrification in many of the cities. It all circles around the sort of same basic themes, which is this sort of division between blacks and whites in terms of wealth and the extent to which the political process is going to resolve that. And, it's, and, and that is, is the principal challenge for African-American politicians in this country, in my opinion. Is it how do they win office with white voters who are you know white voters into it that for instance members of the Congressional Black Caucus are are looking to ex use the government to expand the share of the national wealth that African Americans enjoy that that's their mandate that's what blacks send them into Congress to do and that's what they try to do and it makes it difficult for national black politicians to sort of overcome that now a couple of them have managed to do it or certainly come close um, black Republicans do not have this problem as is evidenced by Tim Scott's victory for instance in South Carolina and not just any district in South Carolina but Charleston which was a historically you know uh, I mean right in the heart of the old confederacy to, to elect an African-American suggests it's not about race in the sense that it used to be it's really more about the distribution of benefits now and this brings me to barack obama barack obama was a democrat who made white voters feel comfortable that he could vote for he would represent the public interest that he wouldn't just be a president to redistribute wealth from white to black but he also was able to signal to african-americans that if they voted for him it would be this sort of 
sea change in the body politic. And so what Obama was able to do was really extraordinary. I mean, he was able to win 43% of the white vote, which is a very solid number for Democrats, um, and also win 95% of the black vote and increase the black turnout from 11% to 13%, which is just extraordinary. For him to pull so many extra African Americans into the Democratic Party coalition without losing white voters, really, because Obama did about as well with the white vote as Kerry did in 2004, is just extraordinary. It was really, it was really his biography, and that was the real power of his autobiographical campaign in 2008, he was able to walk this very fine line. And it's something that I, I mean, is it possible theoretically another politician could do this? Yeah. Uh, but there's nobody on the, in the near term who would be able, there's nobody in the Democratic Party who could bring such a large surge of black voters out without losing white voters, frankly. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton, for instance, would, would do better with Obama with, with the white vote. But I don't think she gets such historically large margins among African Americans. And and the other thing that Obama managed to do with with the black vote was he didn't just get black non-voters to come out. He also got black Republicans to vote Democratic, which is, you know, like I said, that was sort of the nature of his his persona in 2008. It was very difficult to do. I mean, it's actually very in a lot of respects, it's very similar to the Kennedy election in 1960, where Kennedy wins something on the order of 80% of the Catholic vote. It was really the Catholic middle class that had previously been Republican, had voted for Eisenhower, and had voted for the Republicans in 1946. Uh, they swing to, the de- to Kennedy, and that's really the fact Kennedy's very narrow victory over, over Nixon in 1960 was based on this personal you know, sympathy and affinity that middle class Catholics had toward Kennedy. Very different. I mean, the Kennedy coalition has never been re- replicated in the history of the country. Probably never will be either. And I, you know, the Obama coalition might end up being the same. Interesting. Let, let me ask you our signature final question here on New Books and Public Policy, which is what would we, you do about it if you were czar for a day? How would you change things to uh, improve the status of the Democratic Party, make it, as you would say, a more responsible party, and improve our politics in general? Well, I, I think that one thing I would do is I would repeal the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. At least the ones that created minority-majority districting would be the first thing I'd do. Because what that did was – well, it did two things. It, it, first of all, by – by mandating the, the accumulation of these um, these majority minority districts, it basically gentrified the South. I mean, the South is a very peculiar, fascinating, amazing place. With the, and the race relations in the South are so different than they are in the North, where you know Northerners tend to be you know there's there's very stark geographical lines between white and black in the North in the city. But in the South, that's not really, I mean, you can't find really in the deep South, you can't find a county in the South that doesn't have, you know, 20 to 40 percent black population. But what the what the 82 amendments basically did was by mandating these minority majority districts, they they created these far left liberal, you know, you know, majority black districts. But they also shifted the Republican party to the right there because you have black districts and you have white districts so white you know republican members of congress don't have to pay attention to blacks and democratic members of congress don't have to pay attention to whites so what's happened is you've had this massive polarization in the south that i i think is a distortion of what is actually you know it's sort of it's 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 sort of certainly one way to solve the problem of white versus black in the south is to have everybody in their own camps but you know it creates these two separate poles and i think what it's done is it's killed the southern democratic party i think in a lot of respects it's killed it off because no longer now can you it, it used to be if you were a southern democrat you were white southern democrat you you know you could win election to a uh, state legislative district or, or or a house district if your district was like 30 to 40 percent black and what you did was you put together these biracial voting coalitions well you can't do that anymore because you know african americans have all been shifted into these majority black districts so leaving these overwhelmingly white conservative districts that just don't vote democrat anymore and what this is filtered up 
from the local level up into the into the state level, such that I I would argue it's virtually impossible to envision somebody like Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton, you know, getting themselves in a position where they could run for president again. It's just too difficult. And that to me is the real problem is that I, I see Carter and Clinton in their own ways as being sort of very admirable modern democratic leaders. And that, you know, the argument of my book is that clientelism has overrun the Democratic Party. Well, it never really got a full grip on it in the South, at least not after the 1960s, because the labor union movement never took off there. Um, you know, government employee unions are very minuscule there as well. Environmentalist, feminist, sort of the new left has never been very prominent down there. African Americans obviously are a major force in Southern politics, but but the 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 real value of guys like Carter and Clinton was that you they couldn't win elections in states like Georgia and Arkansas. Like Clinton wins in 1982, he wins election in Arkansas. Well, you he only wins by pulling in Reagan voters, and similarly, Jimmy Carter wins election um, in in Georgia in 1970. Well, two years later, you know, most of the Carter voters end up voting for Nixon in 1972, right? So the point is, is that they had sort of reach across party lines was just part of how they played the game. And that is a skill set that unfortunately, I don't think Democratic politicians really possess nowadays. So I, I don't think the farm club in that party is very good. You know, it's interesting you said uh, repeal the, the 1982 Amendments to the Voting Rights Act. I've asked this question of Ewer the Czar to many an author on New Bucks and Public Policy, and this is the first answer that I've heard that you really would need to be the czar to get it done because <laughs> yeah. it's so hard to amend the Voting Rights Act. But, uh, Jay Koss, thank yeah. you very much for joining us today on New Books and Public Policy, and good luck with the book. You've been listening to an interview with Jay Cost, the author of the book Spoiled Run. In his book, Jay provides a history of the Democratic Party and wrestles with this question of the public good and how do you build a coalition of different client interests and at the same time be interested and focused on the public good doing what is greatest good for the greatest number of people in the country without losing sight of the people who helped you get elected. This has been a tension for the Democratic Party since its inception. It's a tension in truth for all political parties but Jay's book really focuses on the Democrats and how it has shifted the Democrats' perspective over time I hope you enjoyed the interview and this is Tevi Troy signing off as always here on New Books and Public Policy keep reading